Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. On a future Friday, there's going to be a kingism. They'll have a we'll, – we'll, yeah. we'll, just, just so you're ready for it. Kingisms. Knife through hot butter. I mean, his his football goes through the wind like knife through hot butter. And I just think that, you know, this game sets up well for the Buffalo Bills. I think you've been hanging around with Sims a little bit. Knife through hot butter. I thought it was oh, hot no. knife through butter. Kingisms. Christopher David Sims corrupting us all with his unintentionally hilarious turns of phrase. Peter King, Mike Florio, two hours, PFT Live, nine days away from Super Bowl 56. Peter, good morning. Welcome back. Eventually, all of the vacancies will be filled. Yes, eventually, I predict all of the vacancies will be filled. It's taken a while. And we can't hear Peter on air. So while we work on that, I will do what I did the other day and just talk. Can we hear Peter now? Peter, talk again. Talk to me, Mike. Talk to me. Now, does Peter talk not to me. hear me? We have Peter on the air. I hear you. You never know what's going to happen. I can happen. hear you. We have to be ready for anything. I can everything. hear you. This is my last show, by the way, in this seat in the mornings for... How many days? Ten days? Because Sometime. all next week in Los Angeles. Monday, the Monday show after the Super Bowl will actually be recorded from the field of the stadium after the game and played in the normal spot. Because, look, folks, I love you, but I ain't getting up at 4 a.m. Pacific time. I'm not getting up at 4 a.m. And actually, I'd have to get up at probably, you know, 3.55 a.m. And extremely quick shower, knife through hot butter, get to the studio, and do the show, but no way, no way to 4 a.m. Sorry, we're going to be live in the afternoons, and the Monday show after the Super Bowl will be taped from the scene of the game on the field 
shortly after the game ends and everyone gets the hell out of there so we can tape our show and go pack our stuff and come home. So anyway, uh, here we are, nine days out. You mentioned the Jaguars hiring Doug Peterson. There are still three vacancies to go. Six jobs filled. The Dolphins, Texans, and the Saints still looking for coaches. Doug Peterson was a guy, Peter, who was just kind of lurking. I never got the sense he was a serious candidate anywhere. You know, before the season ends, you hear his name a few times. You hear a lot of names a few times. And then the interviews start and the jobs start to get filled. And Peterson was a guy that I thought was going to get left out in the cold. And, you know, up until Byron Leftwich has his candidacy, which seemed red hot at one point, subside, there wasn't even an opening for Peterson to get one of these jobs. And now he's got one. Mike, do you have me now? I do have you now. Oh, good. You know, yesterday I was talking to a Jacksonvillian and uh, an employee of the organization. And I said, where's your head coach thing stand? He said, I think it's going to be Doug Peterson. And I said, why? And he said, because they want to make absolutely sure they get the quarterback right. So obviously, if that's the case, then it's Doug Peterson over Byron Leftwich. It's Doug Peterson over... Bill O'Brien, it's Doug Peterson over all of the quarterback meisters. Uh, and, and I have a feeling that it's going to have a lot to do with how we managed Carson Wentz slash uh, the whole quarterback situation, the whole quarterback mess, Wentz, Foles, you know, everything that happened in Philadelphia until the bitter end, obviously, with Nate Sudfeld and that debacle. So, Mike, I... I think it's logical, but it's also going to throw another gigantic log on the fire of the Brian Flores dispute, which is now at six head coach hires, uh, every single one of them a white male, and uh, right now 29 head coaches in the NFL and one black person as a coach. So uh, to me, it just is another looming headache. Nothing against Doug Peterson, but it's just another looming headache for the National Football League. Now, Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl four years ago with the Philadelphia Eagles. It was stunning that he was fired. And we know what teams do in theory when they vet candidates. They try to get answers to questions, especially when there are past situations that went south. And As I remember it, it got kind of rocky between Peterson and Wentz down the stretch. And there was a report at one point, and I think the report was a little ridiculous on its face, that that the two never even communicated, never spoke to each other for six weeks. Number one, I don't know how in the hell that happens. I don't think that physically is possible on a football team between coach and franchise quarterback, even after he's been benched. And number two, after that report came out, People were sending me clips and images of the two men next to each other post the point where they supposedly weren't talking to each other. So unless they just chose to stand about yay far apart and just look at each other and not say anything, they were talking to each other. Mike, I think all of this stems from the fact that um, he got crossways not only with Wentz, but with the front office of the Philadelphia Eagles. And look, if you coach for the Eagles, you understand that, uh, that Jeffrey Lurie is going to be very involved in the draft. 
he is going to be looking at, at the players, uh, you know, a lot like what Jerry Jones does in Dallas. And if you are a part of the Philadelphia Eagles, you are going to know that they take analytics very seriously. And so you had better take analytics very seriously. Here's the one thing I always thought was funny about the Eagles and Doug Peterson getting crossways or whatever made-up word I just made up. You know, it's so strange because who was the coach who was at the head of the parade, who was, who was leading the charge for weird calls, for going for it on fourth down? Who was that guy? It was Doug Peterson. He was like the hero of the, uh, of the movement with no sign in his past that he ever had been that guy. So, and, you know, Philly Special and all the other examples of this. And, Mike, <clears throat> if I can just tell you, yeah, here's Philly Special right here. This is Doug Peterson, Trey Burton to, uh, uh, to Nick Foles. But, uh, you know, to me, I just think what this is, quite honestly, is this is a team that is at the bottom of the pile trying to buy a little bit of the Super Bowl magic and trying to have Doug Peterson basically take this quarterback, you know, under his wing. Can I just tell you one quick story about Trevor Lawrence? Sure. So the last week of the season, and this is why if I'm a coach, I really want to get aligned with Trevor Lawrence. Maybe not get aligned with the, you know, everything else in Jacksonville. But at the end of this season, uh, in the last week of the season, Trevor Lawrence went around the locker room before the game against Indianapolis and told everybody and, and on the field, we are not losing this game. It was the first week all year, what I'm told, of real overt vocal leadership, uh, consistent leadership from Trevor Lawrence, who everybody in the organization loved, but he hadn't been like this. And so he just said, hey, listen, we are not losing this game. And obviously they didn't lose the game. And in fact, they played great and their defense totally intimidated uh, and, 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 and just, you know, kind of really beat up uh, the Indianapolis Colts. So I think what I'm saying here is any coach who looks at Jacksonville is not depressed by Carson or by Carson Wentz, by Trevor Lawrence's, you know, in and out season. Okay, he is energized by the fact that he's got a guy who's the number one guy in the organization and is acting like it. You were pulling on a thread earlier that I want to go back to and pull a little bit more because. You're right. Doug Peterson was the guy who was the innovator for all of the things we are now seeing coaches do on a regular basis. He was the first one that I can recall who did the when you're down by 14 and you score a touchdown, go for two. Yeah. Because if you cut it to six by getting eight, all it takes is a touchdown and the single extra point to put you ahead. You're not positioning yourself for overtime. And if you fail on the two-pointer, you go for to the next time and you force overtime he's the first one to do that and it was kind of like the clouds part and the sun shines it's like where have you been all my life this very basic concept that we see other 
teams use. And it's funny the number of announcers when you watch a game who are still confused by it like they'd never seen it before. But that's become, I don't want to say commonplace, but it's become something that shouldn't surprise anyone when it happens now. Peterson, as I recall, was the first one. But, but Peter, you mentioned that the front office is very <laughs> analytics-driven. You mentioned that Jeffrey Lurie is very involved. And it's amazing how many owners who try to act like they're not involved really are involved because I think when things go <coughs> the wrong way, you want to be able to say, no, I didn't do it. Don't blame me. I'm just the owner. <laughs> How much of what the Eagles did under Peterson was Peterson? How much of it was others saying, this is what we're going to do? Because by now we know all of these head coaches have on their headset the analytics guru who is telling them yeah. when to go for two, when to go for it on fourth down, or at least providing input. For some coaches, I think it's it's a little more mandatory than it is for others. But I'm curious how much of it was front office telling Peterson. And if that's the case, how much of it will it be front office in Jacksonville telling Peterson? And will he be the same as he was or will he be different? I think that it's going to be that's one of the questions at the press conference. I what I would want to know. And if I talk whenever I talk to Doug Peterson, I'm going to say you guys led the NFL in going for it on fourth down in 2016. You led the NFL in going for it on fourth down in 2017. And, Mike, you were pretty efficient, too. 30 out of 53 in those two years. So does that continue? Does does he, uh, even though he's out of Philadelphia, does he continue to want to call plays like that? And to be aggressive like that, especially with a lesser team than he had in Philadelphia. So we'll see. But I think that's a really, really interesting question. Personally, I hope he does it. Because here's a question for you. I don't know what the percentage is on 30 out of 53, but it's pretty good. And if you're successful on something 30 out of 53 times uh, with games on the line in many cases... I mean, think about that, Mike. That is essentially almost twice every game you're going for it on fourth down. That's well above even recent history in the NFL. So to me, I think it's uh, I think that's the Doug Peterson I want in Jacksonville. 56.6% thanks to the calculator on my phone. Another industry scrapped and scuttled. First it was big calendar. Then it was big camera. Now it's big calculator. Big calendar. All dead. <laughs> all dead. Thanks to the <laughs> devices we carry around that have it all in one thing. Uh, you mentioned that of the six vacancies now filled, zero minority coaches, one black coach in the entire NFL, two other minority coaches, Robert Sala with the Jets and Ron Rivera in Washington. Byron Leftwich eight, nine days ago, it felt like had this job. At one point, Mike Jarecki, a respected longtime reporter, radio host covering the Cardinals, suggested very strongly at one point that it was Byron Leftwich plus Adrian Wilson, Cardinals executive, former Cardinals safety, as a package deal with Jacksonville. And 
in the aftermath of Leftwich removing his name from consideration, it became obvious that Leftwich was pushing for Wilson to be the GM, which means pushing for Trent Baalke to be out. It just felt to me for a while, Peter, as if, and they'll never admit to this, I don't think, because it seems so kooky. I almost feel like ownership said to Trent Baalke, look, I got my bird in the hand in Byron Leftwich and Adrian Wilson. You got to bring me somebody better. You got to you got to sell me on somebody other than Byron Leftwich for me to not go this way. Whether that was spoken, whether it was implied, I kind of feel like that's what the last week and a half has been. Trent Baalke trying to find someone that makes Shot Khan say, "Okay, Doug Peterson, uh, I he wants to come here. I like what I've seen from him. I've done my research. We've done our homework." We're comfortable with him, so we'll go that route. Trent Baalke, you get to keep your job. I almost feel like that's what happened. Well, I don't know what happened with Byron Leftwich, and I don't know what happened in the interviews with Byron Leftwich. But something must have happened. How could you get more natural than a guy who just spent two years working with Tom Brady, a guy who last year... Uh, was the quarterback coach on a Super Bowl team working with Tom Brady. Then, again, worked with Brady this year in Bruce Arians' wide-open offense. And also, obviously, the former quarterback of this franchise, who is still very, very well-liked in Jacksonville and all over North Florida. Something happened, Mike. I don't know what it is. But I'm dying to find out what it is. Something happened as to why they didn't hire hire uh, Byron Leftwich. And I think the easiest explanation, because I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard, that there were multiple candidates that that passed on the opportunity to interview with the Jaguars. That Trent Baalke has been regarded as a detriment yeah. to the process, and all the fans down there up in arms wearing clown suits the final game that they ultimately won. Maybe they should wear clown suits every game since they beat the Colts in week 18, but it was all Balky, 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 fire Balky. And I think Byron Leftwich made a power play. He went all in and it, it ultimately did not work out. The owner decided to stick with Balky and add in Doug Peterson. But there is another dynamic that is still unsettled. Rick Spielman potentially being hired by the team. I've heard talk or seen tweets suggesting maybe, maybe team president. For Rick Spielman, maybe at some point Balky's out and Spielman's in as the GM. It just it just seems kind of odd that a guy who's been a GM for 16 years all of a sudden could be added to the mix in Jacksonville. And what that what does that mean for everyone if Rick Spielman ends up as part of the organization? So that's a that's a piece of unresolved business that is still kind of hovering out there. Maybe they wanted to announce the coach first. And they'll get back to us on what happens with Spielman. But that came up out of the blue this week. And it feels like there's some momentum heading towards Spielman becoming a member of the Jaguars. I think it would be really good for the Jaguars. You and I both know Rick Spielman well. I've got tremendous regard for his personnel acumen. Tremendous regard. And he made some mistakes in Minnesota. Hey, Ron Wolf once told me if I batted three thirty three, I was happy you're going to make mistakes, and a lot of them. Um, but the one thing I like about Rick Spielman, he had the Jimmy Johnson ethos about the draft. Gather as many draft picks as you, as you can. 
because you know you're going to make mistakes. Everyone does. So when you have a lot more draft choices, you have a lot more chances to hit on them. And, of course, you're going to miss some. Um, The other thing I really like about Rick Spielman, he's an absolutely plain talker. And you will know exactly where you stand. In an amiable way, he's a plain talker. And you'll know exactly where you stand with Chris Spielman. So to me, I hope for the sake of the Jaguars that they bring in Chris Spielman because he will bring to the table, uh, to me, an aggressiveness around draft time, which, uh, you know, to me, any team should want. You know, it's funny. You gave me a flashback to six years ago when this show first became a morning product on NBCSM, rest in peace, in peace. The first guest, I think the first day, was Rick Spielman, and I called him Chris, like you just did, on the air. (laughs) Called him Chris. What a way to start the interview. Welcome in, Chris. Uh, Mike, I'm Rick. Oh, welcome in, Rick. Uh, so uh, anyway, I, and I thought maybe Rick would find his way to Detroit and work with his brother, which would be fascinating. But Rick's available. He can go anywhere. And, you know, it's funny. Peter, you're right. He did a great job over the years of stockpiling picks, hitting on more than he missed on. But what ultimately brought him down was going heavy in free agency on one guy, Kirk Cousins. And when you give all that money to the quarterback and you get to the playoffs one time in four years, when you're batting 250 after you make the biggest free agent quarterback acquisition in the history of NFL's modern free agency, which also means in the history of the NFL because things like this didn't happen in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, he, he, he hitched his wagon to Kirk Cousins, and four years later, that wagon dragged him out of town. And look, I would have done exactly the same thing that he did. Uh, because, look, when you look at the road of fired coaches, and you go along that road and you look over at this house, you look over at that house, you know what you see, Mike? Every house is going to have a coach, a fired coach, and there's not going to be a good quarterback in that house. And this is possibly the worst metaphor in PFT history, because it is. But all coaches get fired because they don't have good quarterbacks. I mean, I bet, I bet that's 90% of the coaches in the NFL, because they don't have good quarterbacks or there's something wrong at the quarterback position. And... I wouldn't say that, that Mike Zimmer necessarily got fired because he didn't have a good quarterback. But the quarterback didn't do enough in his four years to basically lift the franchise as high as it needed to go, obviously. So I guess the way I look at this is, Mike, you know, not only in this particular situation, but around the league is... A general manager, and, and look, Rick, Rick Spielman had a long rope in Minnesota. A general manager is going to get a few chances, uh, you know, to swing for the fences and to be right or wrong. And honestly, I look at Rick Spielman. I don't look at Kirk Cousins as a failure. I just look at, you know, when you pay a guy that much, you want more out of your investment. 
more than the Minnesota Vikings got. And so I just think he's a really good personnel guy. I trust him. Uh, I think anybody who gets him would be in good shape. And these things happen in pro football. And Spielman, the first name to emerge of the ranks, and we've talked about this previously, and I don't think you or I still understand why this happens, the former general managers possibly getting another crack at it. There are plenty of guys out there who have done the job, who have done the job well. You had a great take on it a few weeks ago that the problem is when they interview, they get all of their failures stuffed in their face and have to explain them all, and it's not exactly the right vibe that you want to have for an interview. It's better to have no attempts at the plate than to be 333 or anything less than 50-50 because you have to to revel in your failures if you're getting another opportunity as a GM. But uh, that may be the best move the Jaguars make. But it still is very hazy and fuzzy as to what happens with Trent Baalke. I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the day it's Rick Spielman and Doug Peterson. Guys who squared off four years ago in the NFC Championship, Peterson coaching the Eagles, Spielman putting the Vikings team together, they could be partnering in the weakest division in the NFL. An opportunity is there in Jacksonville because you are boxing out the Texans, and who knows what the Texans are going to be. You've got the Titans who are very good, but it kind of feels like you know they're at a crossroads and it's kind of wobbly for them. And then the Colts, who knows what they are. But all these other divisions, especially in the AFC, all these other divisions, good luck. In the AFC South, maybe they can make something happen, especially if they can develop Trevor Lawrence the way they need to, Peter. Mike, you know what I think also is the moral of this story? And, and let's, I want to go granular for a second about Jacksonville in this past year. Okay? Everybody knows that Urban Meyer failed spectacularly. Um, and that, that isn't necessarily what I want to talk about. But I want to talk about one of the tributaries of, you know, uh, one of the reasons really why he failed. And that is because he came in not necessarily as a know-it-all, okay? But he came in and really did not lean on his experienced NFL coaches. And, you know, you could say whatever you want about Brian Schottenheimer, or, you know, or some of the guys they, you know, they, they, they had on the staff. Joe Cullen, the defensive coordinator, who they parted ways with yesterday. Uh, Cullen and the Jags obviously read the writing on the wall. They're going to have a new coach come in. He's going to want to name his own people. But my feeling is when you look at what happened, you know, and you look at how, uh, you know, there wasn't necessarily – a reliance on the other coaches on the staff uh, as much as nearly as much as there should have been by Urban Meyer. I think what you're going to see now, Doug Peterson, he was a fantastic delegator. You ask Frank Reich, you ask all the guys on that staff. I wrote about this at length right after the Super Bowl, a week after it. The winning play in the Super Bowl, the touchdown pass, uh, to Zach Ertz, you know, beating Devin McCourty. That touchdown pass was an invention of receivers coach Mike Grow and offensive coordinator uh, Frank Reich on the Monday before the Super Bowl. It wasn't in the original plan. They took it to Doug Peterson. Doug liked it. And at the most important moment, Uh, Honestly, in retrospect, in the history of the Eagles franchise, the most important play call in their history, 
they call this play that had just been invented. Look at this. There it is. And so to me, I think, and we could go into this play in great depth, which nobody really wants to do. But what this says to me is that Doug Peterson is going to rely on his coaches because he always has. And in the NFL today, you cannot be a one-man team. You know, everybody gives credit to whatever. Oh, Sean McVay, Zach Taylor, everything. You know, this is a team effort on coaching staffs. And I think with some on the coaching staff in Jacksonville, they shook their head at how little they were relied on by, uh, by Urban Meyer. We need to move on to other topics, but I, I, I want to raise one point. Within the last week or so, Urban Meyer was on a podcast with Dan Dockich. And, and, and I'm going to give Urban the benefit of the doubt that he's telling the truth when he says these things. I don't know why you would be lying about the things he said. The picture that he painted of himself, his mindset, his attitude as it relates to the NFL was of someone who was completely clueless as to the inherent differences between college football and professional football. And when you hear him whine about practice differences and this difference and that, it's almost as if he had no idea what he was getting himself into, which matches the demeanor, frankly, that we saw from him on the sidelines in the preseason. What did I get myself into? And, Peter, I raise it not because it's a stunning lack of self-awareness or curiosity by Urban Meyer to realize that this is a very different sort of football. And how do you not know that? How do you not know that if you're Urban Meyer? What troubles me, and this gets back to a theme that has kind of taken over the week, and I'm sorry it's anti-oligarch week here on PFT. How in the hell does Shad Khan... What, what processes are they using when they interview coaches that Shad Khan did not ask questions that would flesh out the kind of answers that would get him to say, holy crap, this guy doesn't know anything about the NFL and how the NFL works? Because I think that's full of crap. I just do. And Mike, nothing... I, I don't really know Urban Meyer. I've talked to him a few times, and you know I had fine relationship with him, professional. I, you know, he knew. What do you think he was doing talking to Jimmy Johnson? Uh, you know, a hundred times before he took this job, he knew, and and to say he doesn't know is ridiculous. And it's you know he should just say he should just take the loss. He should just take the loss. Yep. He should just say, hey, listen. I made a mistake in not flying back with my team from Cincinnati to Jacksonville and instead going and then trying to, I gave two explanations for what happened at the bar in Columbus. The first of which was wholly innocent and the second of which was more real. Well, how do you really trust a guy like that? You just, I mean, he just, and again, at that time, I didn't know the, 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 the sort of the depths and the, the entirety of the problems that he had in Jacksonville. But honestly, I think he is rewriting history. I think he had to know what, how practice was. Look, Mike, 
everybody who takes a job in the NFL knows that you don't have an offseason like you had 20 years ago. It's a very limited offseason. So you got to make every minute count. And you got to make every minute of practice time count during the season. And for him to be moaning about, oh, in college, I could practice it, whatever he said, 10 or 12 times. And in the pros, biggest play of the game, and we might only practice it twice. That's life. You got to rely on your players. And you know what? If you think it's going to be the biggest play of your game, then practice it 10 times during the week. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, if you're relying on Jimmy Johnson, you're getting a different perspective on how the NFL works because he hasn't coached for roughly 20 years. So he hasn't had right. to thrive in this era of more limited reps. But I'll flip it around then. Assuming that he was lying about that, that this is just his way of coming up with a clunky justification for why it didn't work, and it was just he's so arrogant that he thinks he can bend reality in his favor just by showing up and saying, hey, I'm Urban Meyer. This is going to work just because I'm Urban Meyer. Kind of like to think that Shad Khan would have picked up on that vibe alternatively when he well, but you know what, Mike? Mike, he had to have him. He decided he had to have him. This gets back to the fundamental problem. He decided he had to have him, and all that other stuff was just details. Yes, exactly. And Mike, the one other point that you're making right now that I think is absolutely correct: Shad Khan, when he talked to Urban Meyer, was not in interview mode. He was in recruiting mode. You know, he was trying to convince Urban, here's why you should take this job. You'll be great at it. It was not, hey, let's sit down and let's talk every granular point of what being a coach in the NFL is like these days. I doubt they ever had that discussion. And so to me, I think there's very much, there should be a chapter for owners, presidents, GMs on interviewing famous candidates. Like, I love the fact that Jim Harbaugh thought he was going to Minnesota to get the job, you know, to be handed the crown. And they said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to see everything about how you will handle this job. And we need to go through an entire day of the same exercises we went through with Patrick Graham yesterday. You know, the mock press conference to this. And the fact that, and again, I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. Whether Jim Harbaugh thought he was beneath that or he was beyond that, I don't know. But that right there tells you something. If he's going to be a perfect guy for this organization, they can't have an imperious coach who's not going to listen to the new general manager or a team hierarchy. They need to have a team. And again, as I say, I don't know what happened. But the fact that Jim Harbaugh thought he was flying to Minnesota to be, uh, you know, to be handed the crown, I think leads you to believe that he felt something that other te- that the team didn't feel, and so they're probably better off not having hired him. You know, and I, I think that what you're saying has a lot of truth to it. Harbaugh believed that the job was his, that he didn't have to sell them, and he was already sold on them. Right. He just assumed they were sold on him because I guess from his perspective, hey, if I want them, they have to want me. And it all blew up. And now Kevin O'Connell in 10 days, barring something unforeseen, it's not done until it's done. In 10 days, we expect O'Connell will be the coach of the Vikings. Okay, Texans, Saints, Dolphins, jobs all still open. Yesterday, the Texans started to put out the word that Brian Flores, 
who became the biggest name in all of sports this week. Brian Flores is one of the finalists for the head coaching job, along with Eagles defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon and Josh McCown, as I said yesterday, comma, unaffiliated. It's so weird. Everybody else has a title <laughs> in this process. Josh McCown does not. Josh McCown is guy who's waiting for phone to ring. Uh, so, uh, yeah, look, I, I think that Flores has to be a finalist. They can't make any blackballing of Flores for having the audacity to go to court and pursue what he believes his legal rights to be. They can't start retaliating against him immediately, and it can't be done, obviously. They can't just all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, oh, no, Brian Flores. Well, you know, well, we were considering Brian Flores until he sued everybody. Now we're not. They can't do that. They have to consider him as a finalist. The question is, are they going to hire him? And, Peter, I don't think they will. There's a whole section of his lawsuit that not so subtly attacks the Texans for hiring David Culley to fire David Culley, lying about why they fired David Culley, quoting the philosophical differences line that Nick Casario used, there's no way they're going to hire this guy. Maybe. Um, I said to a person familiar with the New Orleans Saints process, and look, you've got to figure that the Saints are going to hire Dennis Allen uh, just because he has been the guy internally that they've, that they've thought for the last year, if, if Sean Payton were ever to leave, this is our guy. We got our guy. The defense loves him. They play great for him, all that. So I think Dennis Allen's going to get that job. I, I, I don't know, but I think so. But here's a question for you, Mike. Why wouldn't the Houston Texans hire Brian Flores? Because if they hire Brian Flores, and right now, The Houston Texans are bottom feeders in the NFL. The Houston Texans need somebody to come in and clean up their mess. All right? And let's just say, for the sake of argument, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that they're still going to trade Deshaun Watson. What happens if Brian Flores walks in that front door and Deshaun Watson asks for a meeting with Cal McNair and says... I want to put this all behind us. And if I can straighten out my legal issues, I'd like to stay here and play. And I'm not saying that'll happen. I doubt sincerely that'll happen. But even if it doesn't happen, you're going to get two, three first-round picks for him. You're going to draft, you know, you're going to draft some good players. Maybe you give Davis Mills one more year to prove himself. Who knows? But think of all the free agents who will say, that's my guy. I want to play for Brian Flores. I think a bunch of them will. And it won't just be uh, Nick Casario collecting an expansion team because that's what he built last year. He built a modern-day expansion team. And so to me, I kind of look at this, Mike, and I just say I think there's a lot of advantages to hiring Brian Flores if, if you're Houston. You raise an interesting point because post-filing the lawsuit, that could make him attractive to potential free agents and others who like the fact that this is a guy who'll stand up for himself. Pre the filing of the lawsuit, though, it sure felt like they were going to hire Josh McCown and they were waiting for the right moment to do it, you know, halftime of the Super Bowl when no one's paying attention, something like that. But it felt like that's where it was going that they wanted to hire Josh McCown to be the head coach. 
close friends with Jack Easterby, would allow himself to be micromanaged in-game by Nick Casario. It felt like he was the guy. Now, to the extent the filing of a lawsuit changes the dynamics, look, early on I would have said, and this was like Tuesday into Wednesday afternoon, if one of these teams hires Brian Flores, it takes a lot of steam out of his lawsuit from a PR standpoint. The lawsuit doesn't go away. Flores has said so himself. He's not going to dismiss the case if he gets a job. Since Wednesday night, though, when you have the very strong statement attacking Brian Flores from Stephen Ross, attacking the accusations, false, defamatory, malicious, about offering $100,000 per loss in 2019, then comes yesterday morning, very strong statement from former Broncos GM, now technically a personnel advisor, John Elway, attacking Brian Flores for the suggestion that John Elway showed up for an interview three years ago along with the Broncos contingent hung over from the night before. Attacked him for that. The Giants, and we're going to talk about that coming up, their detailed statement attacking Brian Flores for suggesting that they had decided to hire Brian Dayball before they even interviewed Brian Flores a second time. I think it becomes very difficult for one of these teams to hire Brian Dayball and not think they are going to become persona non grata at three, Brian Flores, excuse me, and, and, and believe that they're going to become persona non grata at 345 Park Avenue. That's, that's the, the, the concern. I, I think what's going to happen is Flores is going to get passed over by everyone, and next cycle he'll get passed over again. And when they finally settle his case, whether it's in court, whether it's arbitration, wherever it ends up, there will be a clause in there that he will neither seek nor accept employment from the NFL at any point in the future, and he'll be paid for that. He'll be compensated for giving up those rights because I don't think anybody's ever going to hire him. And if, they, and if they don't and it goes one, two, three cycles, he's got a lawsuit that may actually be better than the one he has now because you can't retaliate against somebody who chooses to assert their legal rights. And for a guy who was more successful than not in three years with the Dolphins, if he gets shunned this cycle, next cycle, cycle after, it, it becomes – uh, conspicuous to the point of of uh, problematic for the NFL. So I, I, I'll be surprised if the Texans hire him. I don't think they will, even though – because I think he should have been the guy all along. I don't think the events of this week make them more likely to hire him. I think the events of this week make them less likely to hire him, but they're not going to remove him from the list of finalists. That's just my opinion on it. What do the Houston Texans have to lose? Really, what do they have to lose? I mean – Nick Casario uh, knows Brian Flores as well as almost anybody in the league. He worked with him forever in New England. Uh, And so I just think, Mike, when I look at this, the advantages. Right now, Mike, wouldn't you say that a lot of people in the NFL and certainly like agents for free agents, many of them look at the Texans as a clown show? And, you know, what better way to get back in the good graces of players around the league and to become a destination place than hiring the guy who has thumbed his nose at the NFL and said, I'm going to fight you every step of the way. And why in the world would the Houston Texans care whether Roger Goodell hated them? I mean, why? Who cares? And, and, or, or why Jeff Pash or anybody at 345, who cares? You know, Ask the do Saints. what's best for your franchise. Be the modern-day Raiders. You know, hire Brian Flores. I think it's a great idea. 
Well, Peter, I do too. And if you and I, if you, if either of us were sufficiently fortunate that we were in the right place at the right time to inherit a football team, we would make that decision. The problem is we're not Cal McNair, the guy into whose lap this team fell. And as Big Cat coined and I have pirated, dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things. The Texans do dysfunctional things. And even if Nick Casario is comfortable with Brian Flores, from what I know of Flores and what I know of Jack Easterby, I got a feeling Flores is the kind of guy that's going to see through Jack Easterby's bullcrap. Because there's a lot of it floating around. And a lot of people don't see through it. A lot of people are charmed by it. I don't think Brian Flores is going to be charmed by it. And I say that as a compliment. Because I wouldn't be charmed by it. Because I'm always leery of somebody who acts the way that Jack Easterby acts publicly. I'm always leery. And it's well documented. I don't want to turn this into the anti-Jack Easterby slash anti-oligarch slash anti-people who inherit their teams from their parents hour. But, but, I don't think Flores and Easterby would click the way that Easterby and McCown will click. And I think that Easterby's the one who's calling this shot. Easterby's the one who's got Cal McNair under his spell. Easterby's the one who's ultimately going to say, and Jonathan Gannon may be the winner here. He may be the compromise candidate because I suspect that people who get it within the organization are saying to Easterby, Jack, we can't hire Josh McCown. We cannot, especially after the Brian Flores lawsuit, we cannot hire white coach with no coaching experience other than helping out with his son's high school team. We can't do that. I agree with you. Uh, But I just, uh, and you're right, Mike. I think at the end of the day, they're not going to do this. I'm just telling you, I think they should do this. And if I were them, that's exactly what I would do. Because, look, if this blew up in their face and two years from now they had to admit their mistake, then they admit their mistake. And, yes, would they have egg all over their face when they they had to fire Brian Flores? Maybe. But I just think the benefits to this, to me, could be huge because there are going to be so many players who are going to tell their agent, hey, Call Houston, see if we can get there. See if the money's going to be right there. I, I, I mean, that's. I'm just trying to read the tea leaves of what prominent players would think. Because, Mike, you know that there are a lot of players, a lot of players in the NFL who are cheering on Brian Flores. And if there was any way they could help Brian Flores accomplish this or get to the top of the mountain, they do it in a second. Where do the two Super Bowl teams get to L.A.? And they have umpteen press availabilities, and the players are asked about it. The quotes, I think, will be interesting. Now, before we break, because we do have to go, I have an idea. I have an inspiration, an epiphany. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to work really, really hard. I'm going to get up a little bit earlier. I'm going to stay up a little bit later. I'm going to say my prayers. I'm going to eat my vitamins like all good Hulkamaniacs. And I'm going to get myself $10 billion. And when I do, I'm going to buy a team. And when I do, Peter, I'm going to hire you to be the president and CEO of football operations. And together, we will make the decisions that these other folks who have teams fall into their laps don't know how to make. Do you accept my offer prematurely? It may take a few years Maybe 500. Yes. Yes. I don't know that we both will make yes. it that long, but will you take my yes. offer? 
Yes. Right. Mike, Good. I have That's been waiting for you to I've been waiting for you to offer me that job for <laughs> low these many years that I've owned, that I've known you. So thank you. Uh, thank well you. we we have a plan. We have a plan. The fan base of the team we ultimately acquire should run and hide now, because here we come. Uh, but we can't be trust me, and I'm not gonna name names, but we kind of have over the course of the last forty six minutes. We would definitely be better than some of the folks out there who are running and owning these teams because, frankly, you can't get much worse. Let's take a break. When we return, we mentioned what happened with the Giants yesterday. A closer look at the statement they issued a couple of days after they became the target of the Brian Flores litigation. We'll do that when PFT Live continues right after this. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Right around 6 o'clock Eastern last night as we were going off the air from PFTPM, here came a statement from the New York Giants after a couple of days of of silence slash perfunctory predictable commentary. A lengthy, a lengthy statement from the Giants, which says, among other things, the allegation that the Giants' decision had been made to hire Brian Dayball prior to Friday evening, January 28, is false. And to base that allegation on a text exchange with Bill Belichick in which he ultimately states that he thinks Brian Dayball would get the job is irresponsible. The text exchange occurred the day before Coach Dayball's in-person interview even took place. Giants ownership would never hire a head coach based on only a 20-minute Zoom interview, which is all that Mr. Dayball had at that point. In addition, Mr. Belichick does not speak for and has no affiliation with the Giants. Mr. Belichick's text exchange provides no insight into what actually transpired during our head coaching search. That's just some of what the Giants had to say. They called the allegations made by Brian Flores disturbing and simply false. I think this is part of what has been a concerted and probably coordinated effort, Peter, to push back aggressively in the court of public opinion, to not let the Brian Flores lawsuit and his extended media tour. I think he was on every network and cable news channel in one day. He had to have been wiped out on Wednesday night. He was everywhere, everywhere. And I think that contributed to the effort into Wednesday night and Thursday to push back. But uh, the battle has been joined publicly, and it is a sign that when it's time to take the gloves off in court and work this case, it's going to be contentious, it's going to be nasty, and it's going to be ugly, Peter. You know, obviously, Brian uh, Flurry's response, I'm sure, to all this was – I I was with Bill Belichick for whatever it was, 14 years. And I grew to trust Bill Belichick. We became competitors. I still trusted Bill Belichick. And when he tells me, uh, based on his knowledge, his sources in the league, that Brian Dable is the coach of the New York Giants, I believe Bill Belichick. And it isn't, uh, I, I don't, I think it comes down absolutely to that. And then, obviously, what Belichick said came true. So that is what he is going to decide. Now, as for what the Giants said, it was very clear from the start that 
they were going to do many interviews and you know for their GM and their coach job. And they were at the end of that interview process going to decide who they were going to name. My gut feeling, and it's only a gut feeling, is that the Giants entered into all of their interview requests in good faith. And look, John Mara and Steve Tisch, I'm sure, had feelings that they wanted their general manager to get his guy, but they also were going to go through this process. And because Brian Dable went first, you know, isn't it theoretically possible that Brian Dable could have done such a good job in the interview that Joe Shane privately told friends, Dable killed it in the interview. Uh, You know, I really think he's going to be our guy. We'll see, but I think he's going to be our guy. And again, we don't know what happened, Mike. We just don't know. We have a set of text messages from Bill Belichick. We have the New York Giants pushing back on this strongly, as you knew that they would. And I just think now we're going to need to dig very deep into this story. You made this point on Wednesday. And the more I thought about it, the more you're absolutely correct. There's a good chance that we're never going to find out the absolute truth about what happened in any of these cases. Because the NFL will want to do this as they have written in every coach's contract that any disputes are handled through the arbitration process. And in the arbitration process, when, you know, the arbitrator, uh, you know, the ultimate authority is Roger Goodell, you're never going to have these things see the light of day. So the victory for Brian Flores, the partial victory at least, will be if these are heard in a court of law. And none of these teams are going to want to hear this in a court of are going to want to have this aired out in a court of law, I don't think. But that is going to be the key thing. Are we going to be able to get Joe Shane, Brian Dable, John Mara, Steve Tisch, Bill Belichick, Brian Flores on a stand in a public courtroom? Then and only then, in my opinion, are we going to be able to decide with any finality who's right and who's wrong in this case. And before that, each of those individuals would be grilled in a deposition where you're in a conference room, you're videotaped, you're asked a bunch of questions. And trust me, we're on to Cincinnati is not going to get you past a question you don't want to answer. That, in and of itself, I'll tell you what, I don't know how big of a check I would write. I would write a pretty big check to be in the room when Bill Belichick is questioned under oath in a deposition where it's a lot looser. You don't have to worry about how the jury's going to react to the question. You can be hostile. You can be aggressive. You can bounce around with different styles. You can try out different theories and see if it works on the witness. And Bill Belichick's habit of just not wanting to talk about things, so repeating, we're on to Cincinnati or it's already been addressed. If you say it's already been addressed in a setting like that, you're going to get the question again. And you're going to get it again, and you're going to get it again. And what ultimately happens is they pull out a phone, one of those uh, fancy conference phones, and they punch in the judge's phone number. They get his receptionist, connects to the judge, and the lawyer says to the judge, we need an emergency ruling here because Mr. Belichick won't answer the damn question. So, again, I'd write a big check to be in the room for that. Now, Peter, here's part of the problem. 
And we've all heard about the Miranda warnings. Anything you say can and will be used against you. That's true in all litigation. Any statements made by the parties to the case can and will be used against them. That's why, you know, look, if the NFL is smart, and I think on this point they're smart enough to realize they should get a transcript of everything and have a video ready of everything Brian Flores said in every interview that he did. Because all of that can be used as evidence. If he ever says anything that contradicts anything he said on CBS, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, every possible network, anything, anything that that can be characterized as any type of inconsistency, inconsistency can be used against him. So I say that because I'm looking at this giant statement. And I'm always looking for, oh, first day of law school, uh, one of the professors said, the most important thing I can give you is a crap filter. Because there's a lot of crap out there. And you need to learn how to filter it. Consider this, this potential chunk that would get caught in the crap filter. Oh, sorry, enjoy your breakfast. Here, here's the... <laughs> uh, Giants ownership would never hire a head coach based only on a 20-minute Zoom interview. Well, they weren't hiring Brian Dayball based on a 20-minute Zoom interview. If they already decided that Dayball was their guy, it was because they'd already decided Joe Shane is their guy, and Shane has worked with Dayball. Shane brings more to the table than a 20-minute Zoom interview with Brian Dayball. When Shane gets the job, and, you know, Peter, we know how how this works. GM shows up, first day of work, as a GM. The job to which the GM has been aspiring his entire professional career. And in, in addition to scouting players, he's been scouting coaches. He's got a list. That he's got always ready. Here, 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 are the, here are the coaches that I will hire. One, two, three, four. Here's my list. Uh, if, if I'm Brian Flores' lawyer, I want to know what Joe Shane's list was when he walked through the doors. Brian Dayball, your number one guy, because I got a feeling he was. So to, to cr- try to create this notion, well, we would never hire someone based on a 20-minute interview. No, but you hired a GM that already planned to hire Brian Dayball. That's how it works. That's how Bill Belichick knew. Because Shane was ready to hire Brian Dayball the minute he got the job. I think that's the theory, the factual theory, that Brian Flores' lawyers will explore aggressively, and Flores will point them in that direction. You were assuming something that you're jumping to a conclusion that I don't necessarily agree with. You say that Shane was going to hire Dayball all along, or that was his guy all along. It's one thing to think that a guy is going to be your head coach all along. And if I ever get a shot, absolutely unequivocally, I'm going to hire this guy. But I believe that that Wellington or Wellington Mara, John Mara and Steve Tisch, Giants ownership basically said, listen, if you get this job, we're going through a coaching search, you know, and and you obviously are going to have a huge say in it. And most likely, who knows what was said? I don't know what was said, but. John Mara clearly had to say to him that the final decision is either going to be yours or your voice will weigh heaviest, whatever it is, because the Giants had gotten it so wrong with their last three coach hires. So I agree that that could easily be the way he was leaning. And I would agree that if you just look at a blank slate, who would you rather have as head coach? A guy coming off a stormy tenure in, uh, in Miami who had had four offensive coordinators and four quarterback coaches in three years and, you're, and, a, and, and a reported 
stormy relationship or whatever relationship with Tua Tonga-Valoa, his quarterback, or would you rather have the guy who helped develop Josh Allen? I mean, it's not very much of a contest, but I do uh, think... I th- Peter, 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 I, I strenuously yeah. object. It's all in your characterization. Would you rather have a guy who's never been a head coach anywhere and we have no idea if he can step into the job? Or would you rather have a guy who's been a coach for three years with an inherently dysfunctional organization working for an inherently dysfunctional owner who doesn't even live in the city where his team is? He won eight out of his last nine games despite all of the dysfunction and being stuck with this quarterback that the owner had to have who isn't very good, swept Bill Belichick and the Patriots and had a 4-2 and two record against New England and has proven in three years that he's capable of being a head coach where we don't know what Brian Dayball is going to be because he's never done the job. You phrase it that way, Flores is the no-brainer. But, Mike, let me ask you this. Who is going to coach the quarterback that you drafted sixth overall three years ago and you still have hope Brian for? Dayball, maybe. Who's going to coach According him? to one of the foot... What? Maybe Brian Dayball... Maybe Brian Dayball, according to one of the footnotes in the lawsuit, Dayball had had it with Sean McDermott and possibly could have been lured to the Giants in that capacity. Wouldn't that have been something? That would have been something. Look, I think this comes down to a bunch of perceptions. And I think that that's why I want to see this totally aired with in the deposition process, in a court of law, That's why we need to see it this way so we can find out who exactly is telling the truth. And Peter, welcome to the world that I used to inhabit because in every single case I handled, there were issues like this. You had a list of all the different rabbit holes that you had to explore in order to do the job properly because you never knew where that one little fact was going to be that caused everything to cascade in your favor. And you had to investigate everything and get to the bottom of everything. And there were constant he said, she said, he said, they said, we said, who said type disputes. Now, as to Belichick, what was alleged in the complaint is fairly straightforward. Belichick somehow knew. Belichick had inside information that Brian Dayball was getting the job. He intended to text Brian Dayball congratulations He had presumably an autofill malfunction where Brian Flores' name came up and he texted it to him and yada, yada, yada. Abbott and Costello routine at the end of the day. Belichick says, sorry, I messed up, but he didn't say the word messed. The Flores case, and this is another reason why I'm a firm believer in keeping your cards close to the vest until you have to reveal them. Flores revealed something in a conversation with Jay Williams on NPR's The Limits podcast. It's not just a claim that Bill Belichick had inside information. Let's listen to what Flores had to say. I do think that there are back-channel conversations, back-channel meetings um, that are had that oftentimes influence decisions. And... I think that's a clear example of that. Um, you know, here's Bill Belichick, and, you know, his, his resume speaks for itself. He has influence. I think to me that, that it was clear that that decision was, was made with his influence, and that's part of the problem. Um, and that's, that needs to change. There needs to be a, a fair and equal opportunity to interview and 
and showcase, like I said before, showcase your abilities to lead and earn one of those positions. That's a heck of a check to write by Brian Flores, and the facts will determine whether or not the account has sufficient funds. That is a stunner. Although, although, look, there was chatter that Belichick nudged the Giants toward Joe Judge and away from Josh McDaniels a couple of years ago. Chatter. Because he wanted to keep McDaniels. <laughs> well, but, and, and maybe that'll be part There's of the discovery process, chatter. too. <laughs> right. Now, in this case, it's different because neither of these guys currently are working for Belichick, but they both did. I could see that the Giants' ownership, not Joe Shane, because he knows Dayball. He doesn't need Belichick's input on Dayball, but I could see ownership wanting to find out from Belichick, what about Dayball, what about Flores, and maybe even through the process of providing his input. That may be how he found out. Regardless of whether he influenced the decision, maybe he became aware after communicating with John Mara and or Steve Tisch that they're leaning day ball, they're going day ball. These are all, these are all things, though. I think it's safe to say Brian Flores won't be working for Bill Belichick again anytime in the future. Belichick is going to get grilled like he has never been grilled before, Peter. Mike, I want to ask you one question about the, the, uh, the soundbite we just heard from Flores. When he refers to back channel. I mean, I wish that had been more well-defined. And if I were asking the question, I would have said, do you believe that Bill Belichick and John Mara had a conversation before he sent you those texts? That is what the question is. You know, if, because to me, and I don't know this, it sounds like that's what Brian Flores is saying right there. And... So that's what I would wonder about this whole story. You know, does Brian Flores think that Bill Belichick was talking to John Mara about, about this job? Like the way he might have been talking to John Mara uh, in 2020 about Joe Judge. So those are the questions that I think those need a public airing. And here's how it'll work. Let me, let me make it as simple as I can. And, Peter, this is a compliment, not an insult. You would have been a very good lawyer because you have a natural curiosity, and you need to come to these situations with the natural curiosity, and you combine the curiosity with the tools available to you to get to the truth. So if this stays in court, not a kangaroo court presided over by Roger Goodell, which would have limited discovery rights, limited depositions, limited everything – And why waste your time? It's just a matter of weeks, hours, minutes before the rubber stamp gets applied to anything and everything that the teams are saying. That's how it works if it goes that route. But if it goes to court, at some point after the initial skirmishes, there will be a discovery process. And there are tools available to the lawyers to get their information. We've mentioned the depositions. That's where you sit down and you ask question after question after question to try to get to the bottom of issues like the one Peter raised. An important issue. What was the extent of the communications and conversations between Bill Belichick and John Mara before the text messages were sent by Belichick to Brian Flores? Before you even get there, though, here's what happens. You sit down at your computer and you brainstorm all of the documents that you want to see. And what you want to see, it's very simple. Among all of the other things, and it'll be a list of 
probably 100 or more categories of things that Brian Flores' lawyers will want to see. And there'll be fights over what's permissible and what's not. And they'll want to send in a computer expert to make sure they've gotten everything. You want to see the logs of the phone calls from John Mara's cell to Bill Belichick. You want to see the Belichick communications to Mara or anyone else with the Giants. It's going to be a very broad request that is aimed at getting to that very narrow question you've raised. When did Belichick talk to Mara? First, you've got to prove it happened. Once you know it happened, then you delve into what was said, what the vibe was, everything that would go into answering your question of whether or not there was the opportunity and the ultimate influence exercised by Belichick over the process. Or, you know, why, why else is John Merrick calling Bill Belichick? Why, why is he doing it? Why do you do it alone without Joe Shane on the line? There's, there's a lot of right, ways right. it can be painted and characterized, but that's exactly how it would play out. Yeah, and I think those are the kind of things that if we could see those, if we could know those, that's going to go a long way to determining who's right and who's wrong in this, you know, as far as the Giants section of this case would be. But, you know, Mike, that is going to be, that would be a great day in court. I'm just telling you, the best day in court possible would be Stephen Ross. I mean, that, that, because that part of the story is probably going to determine. If it goes south, that part of the story will determine whether Stephen Ross can retain his ownership of the Miami Dolphins. So there's so much about this case that is is hugely interesting. And I kind of wish it happened in a dead week, two weeks after the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, but but it's happening where, I mean, this is the only thing that can knock Tom Brady retiring off the, uh, you know, off the, you know, the back pages or, or whatever, you know, the, the headlines. And, but, you know, as far as the Giants go, I just look at this and say, we need to see a lot more and we need to know a lot more because right now you have an adamant side on one side and you have an uber adamant side on the other side so we'll see it's how it always goes and it will be hanging around for a while it's going to be a gift that keeps on giving and look st louis ultimately walked away with 790 million dollars because the league realized we can't have a parade of owners going onto a witness stand getting destroyed and decimated because people like that are the worst possible witnesses they don't want to submit to the authority of the judge they don't want to submit to the authority of this punk that's asking me these questions who does this person think he or she is it 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 has the potential every time someone like that takes a witness stand it has the potential to go exactly like the cross-examination of jack nicholson and a few good men exactly like that that's why st louis got 790 million and frankly they could have gotten more if they would have pushed it closer and closer to the day when all of those owners would have had to go to court and answer those questions let's take a break speaking of owners who may have to go to court to answer questions at some point the washington commanders had a difficult day yesterday We'll tell you what happened in Congress and what Daniel Snyder had to say about it and what the league had to say about it when PFT Live continues right after this. I learned on one specific occasion that when I was asked by my boss to attend a networking event and, oh, to dress cute, it was actually an orchestration by him and Dan Snyder to put me in a compromising sexual situation. I learned that placing me strategically by the owner at a work dinner after this networking event 
was not for me to discuss business, but to allow him, Dan Snyder, to place his hand on my thigh under the table. I learned how to discreetly remove a man's unwanted hand from my thigh at a crowded dinner table at a busy restaurant to avoid a scene. I learned that job survival meant I should continue my conversation with another coworker rather than to call out Dan Snyder right then in the moment. I also learned later that evening how to awkwardly laugh when Dan Snyder aggressively pushed me towards his limo with his hand on my lower back, encouraging me to ride with him to my car. I learned how to continue to say no, even though a situation was getting more awkward uncomfortable and physical. I learned that the only reason Dan Snyder removed his hand from my back and stopped pushing me towards his limo was because his attorney intervened and said, Dan, Dan, this is a bad idea. A very bad idea, Dan. That's Tiffany Johnston, former employee of the Washington Commanders, making allegations yesterday in a hybrid roundtable before the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Reform after the hearing, and there were five or six former employees who testified. Her testimony was the one piece that went directly at Snyder and made allegations against him. Snyder issued a statement saying that the allegations leveled against me personally in today's roundtable, many of which are well over 13 years old, are outright lies. I unequivocally deny having participated in any such conduct at any time and with respect to any person. You know, something I pointed out last night on PFT. If you say that the allegations are outright lies, you don't need to throw in the many of which are 13 years old. If they're outright lies, they're outright lies. It just feels like you're trying too hard to shout down this allegation by saying, oh, it happened a long time ago. Well, first of all, it doesn't matter. If it's true, it doesn't matter when it happened. And second of all, if it's outright lies, it doesn't matter when it happened either. But anyway, that's Snyder's unsworn testimony. Tiffany Johnston sworn testimony at Congress making that accusation. And Peter, you know, my first thought yesterday when I juxtaposed those two is this is exactly why Beth Wilkinson should have created a report. Because if there are allegations like that, and there were denials by people involved, it's for the lawyer to say, this one's true, this one's not true. I corroborated this one. I wasn't able to corroborate this one. This witness seemed not to be credible based upon choice of words, demeanor, etc. I asked some tough questions. I didn't get satisfactory responses. There are ways for a trained and seasoned and experienced lawyer to ferret through competing versions and come to a conclusion. That's what she was hired to do. That's what I thought. If you're going to investigate it, you're not just going to investigate it and say, well, she says he did it and he says he didn't. There's the end of the investigation. You're investigating it to get to the bottom of it. So that's why we need to have the report, because there surely are many more instances like that where allegations are made against specific individuals, maybe Dan Snyder, maybe not. Who knows? They're not giving us the report. We need to know what the accusations were. And we need to know whether or not Beth Wilkinson decided that the accusations are credible and accurate or whether or not they are, to use Snyder's term, outright lies. It's that simple. Now, the league says this is a new allegation, that Tiffany Johnston didn't cooperate with the investigation. And I said, why in the hell wouldn't she have? She's sitting there in, in an open hearing telling her story. So there's another, that's another one that we got to get to the bottom of. All right, number one, are they telling the truth that she wasn't involved or... Number two, was she involved? And we'll never know because they're never going to tell us anything about the investigation. Mike, I'm reminded of uh, something we said on this show uh, probably months ago when, uh, you know, clearly when 
the 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 Snyder plaintiffs came forward or the WFT plaintiffs came forward and the NFL uh, got away without issuing any report on this. And that is and that we, and this was spoken yesterday by one of the attorneys for the plaintiffs. Are you seriously telling me that you can issue a 200 page report on possibly deflated footballs in 2015 with the New England Patriots and a zero page report when it comes to an owner and his team and his franchise being charged with some of the most heinous crimes of the Goodell uh, commissionership. And that says it all to me. You know, why in the world the NFL didn't have to issue any sort of uh, lengthy report about what happened in Washington. It just smells. The whole thing just smells. And the NFL's uh, basic you know, point, to this point anyway, and Goodell certainly is going to be asked about it again next week, and I'm sure he'll say the, the same thing. Hey, all of these people were provided anonymity when we did the interviews with them. So, you know, we don't want to break the, uh, break the bond, break the accord we had uh, with these uh, people who came forward. But clearly, without any doubt, there are enough women who came forward that if, let's say, I, it, and I don't know how many women uh, Beth Wilkinson interviewed with this, uh, but clearly, if you have to eliminate, let's say, four of them, and the rest of them are willing to come forward and to even to be called Jane, Dunn, Jane Doe 1 through 37, you know, in the, in the course of this report, uh, to me, that is what is important right now. And for the NFL to continue to say that they're not going to make Wilkinson's report or they're not going to have Wilkinson write a report, uh, I think is stonewalling. Let's let's underscore how disingenuous and, and, you know, as I said yesterday, disingenuous is a fancy way of saying lying your ass off. Uh, When Roger Goodell, with all due respect, and I understand that he gets paid 65 million a year to be the person who stands there and peddles this crap. It's crap. The idea that we have some of these employees who request anonymity. So in order to protect an undetermined and undisclosed number of employees who have requested anonymity, we are applying a cloak of secrecy to everything that was developed. Every fact, every allegation, every witness, every person, because there is some number of employees, we're not going to tell you how many, some number of employees wanted this. That is completely bastardizing the reality here. They are taking the legitimate concerns of some and turning it into a human shield. That's what they're doing. They are using this handful of individuals or however many shield. it is. Maybe it's a lot. They're using it as a human shield to hide everything. And, Peter, you nailed it with Jane Doe, John Doe. It's very easy to do. When the Andrew Cuomo report came out after the NFL pulled the fast one on July 1 and dumped this news right on the front end of the 4th of July weekend and managed to get through to the other side with no one saying anything about it and but for the John Gruden emails being leaked – to take him down, this never would have gotten a second life. That is that is the appropriate use of irony. I never quite know how to use it, thanks to Alanis Morissette. That is ironic that the NFL managed 
to hide everything. And then when they decided to dip into that well of 650,000 documents to take down John Gruden, allegedly, it all blew up in their faces. That is ironic, I think. I'm still not sure. But, but Peter, my point is this. And, and there was a, 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 a podcast, the Real Sports with HBO podcast, the night before this congressional roundtable hybrid roundtable. I want to get it right. I still don't know what hybrid roundtable is, but that's what it was. They asked individuals about this and they were providing information, some of them to HBO with different names, but they still said, we wanted this all to come out. We just didn't want our names attached to it. It's very easy to do. And I was mentioning the Andrew Cuomo thing that came out after the, the uh, initial, whatever it was, the NFL did on July one, trying to slip this through the cracks and in the Cuomo report, there are certain of the individuals who had their names changed. That's all you have to do. And anytime that comes yeah. up, it just gets harumphed away by the commissioner. And, and look, he's earning his $65 million. I mean, he's, you know, remember the Wonder Woman had those, uh, those cuffs and, been, you know, that's what he's doing. Those questions come, and he's banging those bullets away left and right. He's very good at it. It's one of the reasons why he gets so much money. But we're here to tell you we get a, a far less than that amount of money to say it's bullcrap and and conveniently not for him but for the media he's available next wednesday we'll see we'll see what kind of questions he gets we'll see how he deals with them but you know the problem is peter until you get somebody under oath like we talked about earlier with bill belichick until you're in a position where you can get a judge on the line and say hey judge will you please ask this person to finally answer the question there really isn't anything you can do you ask him the question he gives an unsatisfactory answer when have you ever seen in a press conference somebody say to the person, I'm sorry, that's an unsatisfactory answer, especially in a situation like this where you have to get invited to participate, and if you piss them off sufficiently, you get frozen out for good. They own the platform. This isn't a true public press conference. This is them inviting in a certain number of people to ask questions, and if you cross the line, you ain't never getting back in. Mike, I think the biggest question about not only the process, but about uh, about what we're going to learn about this is that, you know, Roger Goodell now has six days to sort of figure out exactly how he's going to say why he's not going to issue a report on the Washington situation. There's no question about it. He's going to say exactly what he said in some form at his last uh, press briefing. I think it was the uh, New York fall meetings when he was asked about it because there were two of the plaintiffs or two of the complainants sitting in the lobby right near where he held his press conference, basically talking to anybody who would listen about why uh, this was such an unjust process. And it'll be a very polished statement. And it'll be, it'll be something like he's already said. We promised everybody anonymity. It's not fair. Blah, 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 blah. And that's what'll be said. Maybe there will be a follow-up. And he will basically repeat what he just said. And, and look, it doesn't matter how many ways the question is answered. He knows how he is going to answer, is asked. He knows how he's going to answer it. And Mike, it's just like, Five years ago, if you had asked Roger Goodell about sports gambling, he would have said it is the biggest scourge facing professional sports today. 
And if you asked him about gambling, he would say, oh, it's a wonderful way for everybody to be involved uh, more totally with our game. And, and so, you know, look, just follow the money. That's it. Follow the money, Mike. Here's the quote I want to show you. We've got to take a break. But when the individuals, and there are four of them, former Washington employees who spoke to HBO's Real Sports podcast the other night with different names, they were asked if they want their versions to be made public, even though their names were changed. And they said, one of them said, of course, we want it to be public. That's the entire point. Why would we want this done and just not even gone to print? We want this to be made public so that something can then be done fairly and justly about it. They just don't want their names out there. They want their names to be protected. That doesn't mean make everything secret, make everything hidden. So, And, and the other thing, and then we, got, we do have to go to break. I almost feel like at some level the NFL, with all these storms that are that are brewing now, Washington football team, Brian Flores lawsuit alleging pattern of racial discrimination against coaches and GMs who are black, and the Stephen Ross $100,000 bar. Um, I, I, uh, I almost feel like they got to they gotta, they gotta, they gotta throw the mob somebody. And if this really is a new accusation made by Tiffany Johnston that the league wasn't previously aware of, you know, they say they'll take appropriate action. You know what the appropriate action is? You have Beth Wilkinson investigate it and report back on whether or not Johnson is telling the truth or Snyder is telling the truth. And if Snyder is telling the truth, or if Johnston, excuse me, is telling the truth, not only did Snyder do something that he shouldn't have done, he lied about it. And I, I feel like this could go very badly for Daniel Snyder because he could be the sacrificial lamb. Like, we got to do something. There's too much going on here. we got to show the people that we are willing to hold people accountable. And this Tiffany Johnston thing falls into our lap. Well, it's time to take down Daniel Snyder. I, I don't know that it's going to go that far. But, but if they are looking for someone, this, this fell into their lap, supposedly, out of the blue yesterday, and they didn't previously know about it, Peter. And, you know, look, I know a lot of people who are fans of this franchise or who once were fans of this franchise um who now uh basically uh, basically they they just they don't care anymore it has gone to the apathy stage with this team they're embarrassed by the team they're super embarrassed by the owner and they just i think they would only come back honestly to their formal former level to the Joe Gibbs, Bobby Bethard level of, you know, Washington craziness at games. I, I think they'll only go back if they change the owner. And so that's, I've just been mind boggled, mind boggled by the NFL protecting so strongly and stridently uh, either the worst, second, third worst owner in the league whose fan base hates him. And who uh, I just I need to understand why the NFL is so defensive about Daniel Snyder. It boggles my mind. My theory very quickly, and then I promise we will break. I believe, Peter, based upon everything I've seen, everything I've read, everything I've heard, I believe they're hiding all of this evidence because when it's released, if it's ever released, the NFL will face very difficult questions about what it knew, when it knew it, and why it failed 
to protect these individuals as the misconduct was still happening and the league was aware of it. That's what they're trying to avoid because that's dangerously close to the NFL had the Ray Rice elevator video before it became public. And that's the kind of thing that can bring the whole house down. Let's take a break. When we return, how did Zach Taylor go from the hottest of seats to, to borrow a phrase from our friends at Pardon My Take, the coolest of thrones? We'll discuss that next on PFT Live. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. 